0: Psalm 34, and uh, I'll read the first ten verses of this wonderful psalm. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exhort his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him. Out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Well, let's just bow our hearts in prayer. Our gracious God, we do thank you and praise you for these wonderful words that were inspired by your Holy Spirit through your servant. And we pray that as we take a look at them this morning, That, Lord, you will give us light and understanding. That you will come to us clothed in your word. Lord, that you will meet with us. May each one of us have an encounter with you, the living God. And we pray that we may receive your word. That we may go out with joy this morning. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now in that uh, 34th Psalm... I want us to focus particularly on verse 8 where David suddenly exclaims Oh taste and see that the Lord is good blessed or happy is the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who takes refuge in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. <clears throat> Did you know that eight out of ten cats prefer whiskers? <laughs> Have you tried sell it Bang! Bang! And the dirt is gone. And in my lifetime as a young man, it was Coca-Cola. It's the real thing. And of course, in more recent days... I sold my car, do we buy any car? (laughs) You've certainly got to hand it to the advertisers for trying so hard. Over the years they have developed more and more sophisticated techniques of mass persuasion. Advertising today is big business. And the manufacturers know that it's not enough simply to put a product on a supermarket shelf if they really want to shift it in huge numbers, if it's going to become the next best-selling number one brand of all time, well, then they need to advertise it widely on the radio and the television, on social media, and in that endless stream of leaflets that come pouring through our letterboxes every week. You see, people are not so easily persuaded to buy things today especially now in the 2020s. Of course, in the earlier days of advertising, the situation was entirely different. Uh, For one thing, there wasn't the fierce competition that there is today. And also, the general public do appear to have been a lot more trusting. For example, you only have to read those quaint-old newspaper commercials for patent medicines that were supposed to cure every illness and ailment under the sun to realise just how gullible people used to be. But today, after over a century of high-pressure selling and advertising, well, we've become a lot more cynical, haven't we? We no longer believe all the hype and the exaggerated claims that are being made. We no longer take the salesperson's patter seriously. We have become a lot more sceptical. And this consumer resistance is also experienced by the church. For the very moment we open our mouths to proclaim the greatest good news the greatest offer that men and women, boys and girls, can ever hear, the mental barriers go up. One writer says, The suspicion is abroad, that the world is full of scammers, sharks with a vested interest in making us believe in them. Advertisers want to make us believe in them, so we will buy their product. Politicians want to make us believe in them so we will vote for their particular party. And preachers want to make us believe in them so we will join their particular brand of church. And as far as much of the public is concerned, they're all just tarred with the same brush. They're all just professional propagandists out to manipulate the masses with their eloquence. They aren't really interested in our welfare. They simply want the wealth or the power or the prestige which our belief in them will generate. Hence our sometimes poorly concealed antipathy to such people. Not today, thank you, we say, as we slam the door in their face. Whether he was selling double glazing or canvassing for the election... Or had a little booklet in his hand about Jesus. We are just not interested. Thank you very much. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? Spot on. And I'm sure that many of us here this morning have reacted and responded in much the same way when we've been confronted with cold callers at the front door or on the phone. And they usually call, don't they, at the most inconvenient times. It's amazing, isn't it, how they choose the right time, usually when we're halfway through a meal, or you're getting the kids to bed and struggling, or maybe you're halfway up a ladder doing a job, and the doorbell rings, and the phone rings, and you've got to come down and drop everything. It's very annoying, and we can't blame people sometimes for becoming hostile and irritated when they're confronted with this barrage of persuasion, morning, noon and night. But there is no denying it. It does pose a big problem for the church. For how are we to communicate this glorious gospel to the masses outside when the average person in the street simply puts up the mental barricade and says, not today, thank you. How do we overcome this inbred cynicism? How can we bridge the credibility gap? Well, I suggest to you Psalm 34 has the answer. For there is one type of commercial which is as old as humankind itself, it needs no market research, no media hype, no modern technology. And yet I still believe it is one of the most powerful, one of the most irresistible forms of persuasion known to man. It is simply the power of personal recommendation. And that's exactly what David is offering to us in this psalm this morning. He says, I've been in trouble, deep, deep trouble I've been up to my very neck in it. I've even stared death in the face. And yet I've experienced the goodness and the deliverance of the Lord in the most outstanding way. Why? I saw the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. It really works, says David. And I know that if you trust him too, then you will experience the same we have a saying the proof of the pudding is in the eating and that's exactly what David is telling us here in this psalm he says oh just taste if only you will taste you will see the goodness of the Lord and you will come to experience the sheer blessedness the happiness of all who put their trust in him. The power of personal recommendation. You see, David here is not some professional salesman, is he? He's not just giving us mechanical sales patter. He's not following some carefully prepared script that he learned from head office on training day. No, no, David is speaking from the heart He's speaking out of his own personal experience. He has tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in his life. And now he wants others to experience it too. The power of personal recommendation. Many years ago, uh, I was uh, in a particular town after a preaching engagement, waiting for my train to come in. And I had a little time to kill And so I started browsing through the window of a second-hand bookshop in the town, as uh, pastors are accustomed to doing. In those days, I was trying to build up my library. Uh, Today, I'm trying to pare it down. But uh, in those days, I was interested in books. and, And I was looking through the cheap section, and I came across a very interesting title. It wasn't a Christian book at all. In fact, it was a book about modern selling techniques. And it was written by an author whose ideas were well in advance of his time. And because I used to be uh, buying and selling in the jewellery trade in the lanes in Brighton before I entered the gospel ministry, I bought the book for this particular illustration. The author tells the story of a man who walked into a high-class jeweller shop in Hatton Garden, London one day asking to see diamonds for an investment good ones well the sales assistant quickly uh, took the man and uh, showed him to a seat on the other side of the shop he sat him down by the counter he opened the big safe and proceeded to pull out a tray of the most exquisite diamonds he then began to tell the customer all about them where they'd come from, the country of origin, even the mine from which they had been extracted. He was full of it. He began to tell him about the lengthy process of bringing them from their raw, rough state underground to the polished condition and the beauty that he could see in front of him. And then he began to tell him about the four seas. Now, men, if you want to buy your loved one a diamond you need to learn the four c's first of all there is the sea of clarity how clear is the stone how clear is it from internal imperfections he let the customer view each stone through his eyeglass so he could see the almost flawless nature and structure of each stone And then he told him about the sea of colour and how they vary from a bluish tinge to a yellowish to a brilliant white. He told him about the sea of cut. He explained how many facets were on each stone, how they'd been polished to bring out the internal fire and beauty of the stone. And then he told him about the sea of carrot weight, the size of each stone. And finally... He revealed the price. Well the customer was absolutely enthralled by all this wonderful information and the beauty of the stones but it was a big purchase. They were expensive and he said I- I'm going to need to uh, to sleep on this. Well as the customer was leaving the shop the owner himself walked in and seeing a customer leaving without making a purchase He immediately said, "'Good morning, sir. "'Weren't we able to help you with a purchase?' "'Well,' said the man, "'your your assistant has been very kind "'and he's given me all the information "'about diamonds that I need, "'but I'm not quite sure.' "'Well,' said the owner, "'maybe I could be of some assistance.' "'And so the owner took over "'and he sat the man down in the same seat "'in the corner of the shop. "'He poured out the same tray of diamonds.' He gave him virtually word for word all the information that his assistant had given. And then after about 10 minutes or so, the customer made his purchase. And just as he was paying for the item, he looked up at the owner and he said, now tell me, he said, I'm really interested. How is it that you were able to persuade me to buy this diamond Whereas your sales assistant couldn't. Oh, said the owner with a big smile on his face. That's very, very simple. He said, whereas my sales assistant knows all about diamonds, I love them. I live and breathe them. They are my life. And that's it in in a nutshell, isn't it? That's what Psalm 34 is really all about. Because David here is speaking from first-hand experience. He doesn't simply know about the Lord. He actually knows him and loves him. He has entered by grace into a personal saving relationship with him. He's put his personal trust in the Lord and has come to experience just how good he really is. And now he can't keep the good news to himself. He wants everyone to discover what he's discovered. It's so glorious. It's so utterly amazing. His heart is simply bursting with praise. Did you notice how the psalm begins? I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exhort his name together. You see, this is one of the most joyful of all the Psalms to be found in the entire collection. There's nothing sad, is there? There's nothing depressing in this Psalm. There's no negative note here. David it doesn't find himself in the doldrums. In a pit of despair and depression. Not a bit of it. He's not in the depths, he's in the heights. He's on the mountain top. The praise just bubbles out of him. He never felt more positive in his, in his entire life. Because David here is giving us his own personal testimony. He's speaking out of his own personal experience of the Lord's deliverance. Notice how in verse 3 or verse 4, he speaks of his fears. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then he goes a bit further, verse 6, he speaks of his troubles. He says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. What a testimony. But you say, well, what were these fears? What were these troubles that the Lord had rescued him from? And of course, the background to the psalm is recorded in the reading that we had earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And you remember the story. It's a very familiar one, isn't it? How David had been forced to flee from the palace in Jerusalem because of the wrath of King Saul. Saul, who was Israel's first king, was jealous of David. Jealous because of the many deliverances the Lord had given to Israel through him. Jealous because of how David had swayed all the people towards him. He'd even heard these children chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands... And this was too much for a megalomaniac king like Saul. David had to go. And so David was forced to run and to flee and to become a fugitive. He was hunted down by Saul and his powerful army from place to place. David was in a desperate situation. Desperate times call for desperate uh, situations. And uh, David realises that Saul's going to catch up with him. He needs to find a place where Saul will not follow. And he suddenly realises there's only one place he can go. And that is into the land of the Philistines, Israel's enemy. And so we read how David took refuge in the Philistine stronghold of Gath. Now for David, this was a very risky business, wasn't it? Very dangerous business. We might say a foolhardy business. Because it was only a few years earlier that David had actually killed the champion giant of Gath, Goliath, with his sling. And now here is the same David, walking through the streets of Gath, wearing the giant's sword. It was absolute madness, lunacy. Such were the times that David was living in. Such was his desperate plight. And David's fears... Came to roost. He was soon captured, wasn't he? He was soon recognized and he was hauled in before the king. No wonder he speaks of his fears. He must have been absolutely terrified. He thought his end had come. He was quaking in his boots. But you know, in his great need, what does he do? He prays, he cries out, he seeks the face of his God, he offers up quickly an arrow prayer. He cries out, Lord, save me, help me. He says, this poor man cried, you bet he did. He cried out to the Lord with all his heart. And then the answer came. Suddenly he knew, he realised there was only one way to escape and that was to play the part of a madman. And that's exactly what David did. With the help of the Lord, he puts on the Oscar winning performance of his life. Just look at him, rolling on the floor, foaming at the mouth, clawing at the furniture. It was absolutely brilliant. And the king of Gath fell for it, hook, line and sinker. In fact, it was so convincing a performance that the king turns to his uh, servants and he says, Look at this man, he's insane. Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this madman into my court? get him out of here and to David's relief that is just what they did now someone may be thinking well that was very lucky poor that was a lucky escape but you know David knew there's no such thing there's no such thing as luck this wasn't down to luck or David's ingenuity on the spur of the moment no no David knew that this was a divine deliverance It was a specific answer to his believing cry and he was just thrilled to bits about it. And that is why upon leaving Gath, David enters the cave at Adullam and probably there he sits down, he puts pen to paper and he's inspired to write the glorious words of this 34th psalm. Now, as we take a look at the psalm, quickly, this morning, I want you to notice it's naturally divided into two parts. There are two halves here. In fact, Spurgeon called the first 10 verses a hymn and the last 12 verses a sermon. And I think that's most significant, most helpful, because David here doesn't just give us his personal recommendation. But you'll notice he also goes on to reveal the price, the cost. Many retailers and manufacturers today, they're very crafty, aren't they? They'll tell you all about the glory of their product. They'll even come and demonstrate it for you in your own home at the weekend and spend hours with you, telling you, How superior it is to anything else on the market. You will be a fool not to buy this. How you need it. And they'll tell you everything about the product. But the one thing that they will neglect to tell you is the price. How much is it going to cost you? What's the bottom line? Or they put it in such small print in the contract that you can hardly read it. But you see, David refuses to resort to such a thing. David doesn't want to pull the wool of our eyes over our eyes this morning. No, no, he wants us to know that if we would sample the Lord's goodness, then it's going to cost us something. And that price is a profound respect for God's holy person. It's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. We have it here in verse... 11. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you see what David is telling us here this morning? He's saying that if you would sample and experience the goodness, the deliverance of the Lord, then it's going to mean a radical moral transformation of your life. A complete turning around, what the Bible calls repentance. We must depart from evil and do good. We must seek peace and pursue it. We must get the fear of the Lord into our hearts. But maybe there is someone here this morning and you're a little bit disappointed in this. You would much rather David talk about the love of God rather than the fear of God. But David's choice of vocabulary is surely not so surprising. When we remember that David knew all about fear, didn't he? His life had been coloured by it. This had been the chief emotion of his heart for some days, some weeks perhaps. David had been living on fear. And what David tells us here is that the only answer to fear is fear. Sounds bonkers, doesn't it? But listen to him. He says, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. You see, the only answer, the only antidote to fear is to fear. One commentator says, a God who isn't big enough to cause you some serious trepidation is not going to be of much comfort to you when you're trembling on your knees in the court of the Philistines. If he can't make you afraid, well, he's hardly going to make them afraid. When you are afraid, you need a God on your side who is so tremendous, so dreadful, that he is even more formidable than all those things you're in a cold sweat about. And he's absolutely right, isn't he? Spot on. Maybe there is someone here in this service this morning and you're filled with fear and anxiety. You're way down. The dark storm clouds have come across your horizon and you can't see any way out and you're overwhelmed this morning. Maybe it's the weight of your sin. Maybe you feel the guilt of your sin, your past sin, rising up before you, threatening to drown you. Or maybe someone here is... Afraid of the future. You're filled with fear concerning losing your job, becoming made redundant. Not being able to repay your mortgage. How are you going to put a roof over your your family's head? You're worried sick. Or maybe there are others here this morning and it's health problems. Your health is beginning to suffer. And you're awaiting on the doctor for the, the, the results to come in. And you're afraid, you're terrified of that diagnosis of the big C. What if I contract cancer? How am I going to cope? Maybe there is someone and you're facing the last enemy, death itself. And you're overwhelmed by the king of terrors and it's threatening to, to flatten you and to crush you this morning. Well, friends, in those situations, you need a God on your side, you need a champion. Someone who is for you and not against you. Someone who is greater and far more formidable than all those things that you're terrified of. You see, the paradox here is that the fear of the Lord drives away all other fears. The fear of the Lord, friends, is the beginning of wisdom. And I say to you, if you fear him, then you will have nothing else to fear. But maybe someone is thinking, but does that mean, preacher, that if I trust and fear the Lord this morning, I'm never going to have any more troubles? Is that what David is teaching here? Is he one of these American televangelists on the God channel who pops up all ego and uh, And tells you that if you come to Jesus, if you sign on the dotted line, then you'll get this, that and the other and life will be rosy and all your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus now and you will be healed. You'll have health, wealth and prosperity. Is that what David is saying? Certainly not. It wasn't even David's own experience, was it? David knew all about the trials and the difficulties and the problems and pressures of life in this world. No, no, the Christian is not exempt from these trials and troubles. Even the Lord Jesus warned us, didn't he? That we need to deny self and take up the cross and follow him. That there is a price to be paid, there is a cross to be borne in following Jesus. But it's through the cross that we shall gain the eternal crown. We can't escape it. There's no way around it. Paul himself says through much tribulation we shall enter the kingdom of God. No, the Christian is not exempt from the trials, the problems, the difficulties of life. But what David is saying here is that when the unbeliever, when the believer finds himself in a tight corner... He can do something that no unbeliever can. He can pray. He can cry out. He can seek the face of the Lord. And the wonderful good news this morning is that we have a Father in heaven who loves and delights to hear his children's cries. That's David's testimony. Not the absence of troubles, but deliverance from trouble in answer to believing prayer. Listen to how he puts it from verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the broken heart and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's David's testimony. What a testimony. (laughs) And it's the testimony of all who fear and trust and take refuge in the Lord this morning. Is it any wonder, David says, oh taste and see, that the Lord is good. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Christian friend, in this service this morning, are you willing, as David was, to share your personal testimony with others? For this is the only kind of advertisement that carries any real conviction. You see, in our cynical age, people want first hand evidence that Christianity really works. They're not going to believe it simply because the preacher says so. As far as they are concerned, he's just another professional salesman making a pitch. No, no, the success or the failure of the church's evangelistic mission depends not just on a few professional communicators, but more on satisfied customers. People who can say with David, yes, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. It really works. Why don't you taste and see that the Lord is good? But maybe there is someone else here in the service this morning, and you're quite different. You are maybe just a nominal believer, a Christian in name only. Oh yes, you believe in God, yes, you say you believe in Jesus. You come to church, you read your Bible, you occasionally say your prayers. You have all the information, but you do not really know his person. Well, if that is so, then the application this morning is, oh, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, Christianity is a matter of personal experience, personal tasting. It's a supernatural encounter with a risen Lord. Christianity is experiential. And if you taste, then you will see just how good he really is. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. There's a lovely story told, and I'll just close with this this morning, of a a missionary who was working in a remote part of Africa many, many years ago. And uh, he was walking one particular morning from one village to the next, when he noticed a little boy coming towards him. And he thought he was probably about six, seven years of age. And as the boy was coming towards him, he put his hand in his pocket and he pulls out a big bag of sweets. Yes, wonderful. He just receives them from home. So he takes a handful out of the bag and then when the boy passes by, he opens his hand and he offers the sweets to the little boy. But you know, the, the boy looks rather puzzled. He looks a bit perplexed. He's troubled. Why? Because the missionary discovers the boy has never seen sweets before. Can you imagine that? Boys and girls, no sweets. Pastor Chola, no chocolate. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? But this was the experience of this young boy. There were no sweet shops in his village. He didn't know what these were. Nice coloured things. But what does he do with them? Well, the missionary indicated that he was to take one, pop it in his mouth under his tongue and suck it. And the boy did so. And suddenly his eyes began to glisten and his whole face was aglow. He had never, ever tasted anything that was so good before. And what does he do? Does he just stand there finishing his sweet? No, no. He takes the other sweets and he rushes back to his village. He can't keep this good news to himself. He must tell everyone. And he gathers the boys and girls in the village. And he begins to tell them of his experience that morning and what's happened to him. And this sweet in his mouth. And the boys and girls ply him with questions. And they say, well, tell us, what does it taste like? What is it really like? And realising he can explain it no further, he simply opens his hand. And he says, why don't you taste and see? yourselves that's it friends oh taste and see that the Lord is good reach out that hand of faith and trust this morning believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will experience the goodness the deliverance of the Lord everything that you need to be found in him for time and eternity And you won't be able to keep that good news to yourself. The evidence will be that your tongue will be loosened. And you will go from this place rejoicing. Going back to your homes, your parents, your loved ones, your grandparents, your school friends. Telling them what great things the Lord has done for you. And you will say, why don't you taste and see for yourselves? May God grant it so for his glory. Amen.